1792. October, November, December. Three months in which the French win another major victory against the Austrians, opening up the road into Belgium. This battle, as is the case with pretty much all the battles in this period, a real seesaw affair. An audacious raid over the Rhine goes surprisingly well. They didn't dare leave Alsace completely undefended, and they came up with this cunning plan of attacking the Austrian magazines at Speyer. And the British government is beginning to realise that events on the continent are starting to get a little out of hand. There is um, evidence that the radical societies are spreading seditious opinions. Things are not looking good. I'm Alexander Stevenson and this is episode four of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months in which Allied hopes of crushing the revolution before Christmas are well and truly extinguished. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period three months at a time. And for the three months covered by this episode, I'm joined by Philip Ball and Paul Demay, both from the Helian Book Stable, on the campaign in Flanders and on Custine's invasion of Germany, respectively, and then by independent historian Jacqueline Reiter, who makes a welcome return to provide an update on developing British attitudes to the revolution. And of course, as always, Alexander Mikabaridze and Charles Estale are with me to chew it all over. But first, what are the headline developments in the final three months of 1792? Well, the military action in Flanders is our main focus, and thanks to victory for the French at Chimap against the Austrians, who decide that discretion is the better part of valour and decide to withdraw, we find that General Dumoirier is living up to his promise of taking the fight to the Austrian Netherlands, that is Belgium, for Brussels Falls on November the 15th, and the French conquest of Belgium is completed by the beginning of December. Elsewhere on the Rhine, a daring raid by Adam Philippe, the Comte de Christine, sees a very small French force cause havoc in places like Spears and Mainz, and French troops occupy Nice, which was a part of the Kingdom of Savoy at the time. In French politics, the trial of Louis XVI gets underway in December. Maximilien Robespierre, a prominent radical Jacobin, calls for his execution, saying Louis must die so that the nation may live. It doesn't help that secret correspondence between Louis and foreign monarchs was discovered in November. Awkward. In Poland, the second partition is completed. Prussia takes a decent chunk of Poland, and Russia takes an enormous chunk of Poland, which reduces Poland's population size to just a third of what it had been before. Russian forces garrison this rump state, and meanwhile, Russia approaches Britain to suggest a counter revolutionary war. But William Pitt is more interested in sending troops to Scotland and setting up a militia to deal with domestic disturbances. In the Caribbean, the French commissioner Sontenax continues his efforts to extend the French government's control over Saint Domingue. 
So that's the situation. And in this episode, our three interviews are looking at the French conquest of Belgium, including the Battle of Jemap, uh, that outrageous raid by Custine, and then a catch up uh, to see how things have been going in Britain throughout 1792. Of course, Britain's still staying out of this war for now. And uh, as usual, we have uh, Charles Esdale and Alex Mikabaridze on hand to provide their expert analysis. Uh, but seeing as for the first time, we haven't got an interview on French politics during this three months. It's probably worth quickly covering that off now. Having had the turmoil that led to the creation of the Republic and a real sense of resolution that the radicals are now pushing the agenda. Alex, I wonder whether you could sum up briefly what um, what were the main developments in, in French politics in October, November, December 1792? Probably none, no other event was as important uh, during this time uh, uh, for the French as the trial of the king, um, which, um, as we have seen, well, the king was overthrown in August of 1792. The Republic was then proclaimed in September. The preparations for the trial uh, of the king, or the, at least the decision what to do with him, was made in October. And then uh, by December, the trial is already uh, set to go. In fact, it will open uh, on December the 3rd with this uh, uh, remarkable speech that uh, Bertrand Barrère will present uh, with this indictment of, of, of the king, or as he was referred to as simply Louis Capet. And if we look at these charges, they are quite stunning. Uh, there are 33 indictments or charges uh, levied against the king. Uh, some of them are quite frivolous, uh, things like number 33rd charge is, uh, quote, you caused the blood of the Frenchman to flow. Uh, it is as vague as you can you can have it. Uh, or yeah. uh, one of the favorite ones is the charge where he was accused of, uh, I think, in, in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in charge five of distributing money to, quote, effect a corruption among the people. To which the king responded by saying, hey, I'm the king. My very job is to give money to the poor and to the needy. <laughs> so was it a, was it seen as a joke at the time? You know, was it was this clearly a farcical show trial or was there any sense of this being seriously contestable uh, legal action? From the revolutionaries' point of view, of course, they, they took this seriously and, and they certainly thought that the charges that they were levying against the king, for example, the charge that despite making promises to the National Assembly, the king refused to accept the abolition of feudalism as stated in the Declaration of the Rights of Men and Other Changes. That's the charge number third. And uh, that's a crucial disagreement between the revolutionaries and the king. In fact, after hearing this charge, and the, uh, being asked how he pleads, the king's answer was, my refusals were just, uh, and that he still believed that what the revolutionaries have done uh, in these uh, August reforms of 1789 were not legal or justified. So uh, there is certainly a sense of uh, righteousness on, uh, on both sides. Revolutionaries believe that what they were doing is, is correct, although not many of them are convinced that uh, the killing of the king is necessarily the right way to do, and you will see that uh, playing out in December when final, you know, the final cast, you know, the casting of the votes is taking place on on what actually to do with the king. But from the king's point of view, and and certainly his defense rightly pointed out that many of these charges, if not almost all of them, 
are bogus, are just simply very vague by their very nature. What does it mean that the king, uh, you know, caused the blood of the Frenchman to flow? Or uh, he, you know, he's accused in charge 28 that of keeping the Swiss guards, which uh, supposedly was contrary to the constitution. Um, and, and so on and so on. So the king's defense was certainly trying to poke holes in, in, in these charges. And they would have been successful if the trial was indeed um, fair, to, so to speak, that, you know, if the king had a chance of, of acquittal, yeah. which I never had. I mean, if, if we'd been live blogging this trial, it would have been tremendous. Uh, it would have been great TV. It would have been great telly, I reckon. Well, so thanks for that, Alex. And we've got Charles with us as well as usual. And Charles, um, of course, this is still a Brissotan government, so it's very much Republican. We don't like the word moderate when we talk about uh, Brissot and, and his government. But it feels like it's the Jacobins shaping the agenda, but from opposition, as it were. Is that is that right? Like you know, the the way that the politics is playing out at this time. Um, no, not really, because it. it I mean, the the, the Brissotin are in power. I mean, it's the, it's the Brissotin who've made the war. It's the Brissotin who have who've made the republic, and it's the Brissotin, the Brissotin who is still in charge now, um, making policy. Whether they're making policy sensibly is another matter but it is them who are in charge and it is them who just at this point i i, I believe it's november the 19th or something like that um 1792 they 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 issue what's called the first propaganda decree which essentially lays down that any person or people who rise in revolt against their overlords will enjoy the friendship and favor of france um the french will come to their assistance clearly a very destabilizing idea which probably will widen the war but whether the 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 uh, the, the Brissotin are acting wisely whether they're they're prepared for the consequences of what's going to follow but well, it's unclear that's the big big question mark hanging over this over this three months i suppose and we'll we'll, we'll come back to some of those questions later in this episode i think um but let, let's move on now to our first uh, interview and we are going to be looking at the military situation uh, in belgium with philip ball uh, who, who i can introduce to you now philip has a long-standing interest in military history and worked for a number of years in museums, archaeology, and the heritage sector. He's currently researching British amphibious operations in the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. His book, Neither Up Nor Down, The British Army and the Flanders Campaign, 1793 to 1795, is uh, out now, published by Helion. I began by asking him um, what Dumoirier's options were after the, the uh, French victory at Volmy, uh, which we heard about in the last episode. I think he had to be more proactive I mean, from, from, a, from a number of perspectives. I mean, first of all, he had to get his army out of France. It wasn't being fed. It wasn't being supplied. It wasn't being paid. And it was growing in numbers and had a large and was fairly indisciplined. So you don't want to have a large, indisciplined and enthusiastic army on your own soil. Yes. He, he moved it very quickly 
or as soon as he could, really, as soon as he'd got it organized and he'd got uh, the organized supplies of, of hats and shoes and presumably ammunition uh, for his troops. And he marched them into Belgium as soon as possible, attacked um, the Austrian Netherlands, as it's called in those days. And just trying to put myself in Du Maurier's shoes, how much do you know if you're if you're him about? Um, I mean, you know roughly how many men you've got uh, uh, by the colours, but you know, as, as you're trying to, what, what intelligence do you have as as you try and think about? Are you are you aware of? Well, I've got one hundred thousand men on my left. 50,000 on my right, so I'll go right. Or, what's, what's the, or is it a fog of war problem persisting? There is a fog of war throughout the whole. It's, it's, uh, it's very intense during this period because uh, communications aren't what they are today. Uh, sending of messages was pretty hard. But they did pretty much seem to have an idea of where the enemy were and what sort of numbers they were in. They, they had pretty strong spy networks. And in spite of being the Austrian Netherlands, Belgium wasn't massively uh, enthusiastic in the imperial cause. So there were probably quite a lot of people in Belgium who were prepared to give information to the French about where the Austrians were and what sort of numbers they were in. And we've had the Battle of Valmy. The main Austrian army has retreated. The Prussians, who were leading the, uh, the attack on uh, on France have gone back across the Rhine. Uh, they're pretty much out of it for the, for the time being. Uh, you've only got to contend with this small force besieging Lille under the Duke of Saxe-Teschen. And that is... Um, the, the yeah, how big was that Was that force then? It's about 14,000 men. Oh, right. So not, not too much, yeah. And how many did Du Maurier have? Du Maurier's got about 40,000. So yeah. he, he ah. has... So it should be fairly straightforward. Significant amount. He's he's more than two to one, and um, although his 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 numbers will be hard to keep a number on because they will fluctuate quite frequently. There's been a surge of recruitment in the in the aftermath of Valmy. These volunteer battalions have been raised, particularly in Paris, and have rushed off to fight the enemies of the Republic. They've all rushed to join the colours, only to find out that they don't get hats, shoes, food, money, or even a musket in some cases. But you don't want to keep those troops on your own ground. You, you want to move them into enemy territory as quickly as possible so they can live off the land. Um, the poor old Belgians, for them, the first round in what's going to be a fairly intensive period of pillaging and looting. There won't be much of Belgium left by 1799. Yeah. But, it doesn't um, sound very cheerful. And, and so the Duke of Saxe-Teschen is busy besieging Lille, and yeah. what does he do when he realizes that this uh, revolutionary uh, rabble, are, uh, but quite a, a, a large force of, um, uh, of rabble, are, are approaching? He's surprisingly unconcerned. Um, he, he, he doesn't think much of the French, in spite of uh, the, the stories that are coming out from, from the battlefront of these, uh, these almost superhuman revolutionary uh, patriots. You know, we, we hear about Valmy where the cries of vive la nation were, were, were sufficient to see off the, uh, the, the pipe clayed automatons of Prussia. And so these, <laughs> yes. these succession isn't the least bothered. Uh, he thinks they're a rabble. Uh, he's, he's pretty close to the money, to be honest. I mean, the, the, uh, the desertion rates are phenomenal. This is why I say that uh, it's hard to put, put a finger on how many men Dumoirier has because he might have. 40,000 on Tuesday. By Wednesday, it might be 38,000. You know, but, uh, basically, the idea is that uh, he pushes into Belgium 
and Saks Teshin retires to a, a defensive position around Jumaps. And yes, um, this is the village, and and so he's up on a hill, and you know it's all fortified and should should be fairly all right. Out, he's got he's got fifty odd guns, are all well served. He's blowing big holes in the French as they come at him, but he he's gonna he's gonna stand his ground. He's not concerned about being outnumbered anything up to three to one. Uh, he's 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 ready for it. And the French uh, come at him in the, in, the, in the same old style, as they say, although it's not the same old style. It's quite a new style at this point. It's supposed to be one of the first uses of, uh, of, of an attack column. Oh, um, really? Right. To the extent this is true, because it, it's, it's debated in a lot, of, uh, a lot of areas whether the French actually used the attack column that often or whether it's just a, a way of getting across the battlefield and they never actually got round to forming up in something <laughs> like they're supposed to, or they just didn't have the... Uh, the, the the, the training, uh, it, it's, it's easier to herd men in a big column than it is in a, in a smart, well-dressed line. But yes, anyway. yeah, just run, just run that way. Yes, just, yeah. they're over there. We're, we're, I mean, you hear quite often of, of, of the French having to, uh, the officers beating their men with the flats of their swords out of ditches and uh, from behind hedges, getting them back into the, into the fighting line. You know, there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. So this battle, as is the case with pretty much all the battles in this period, a real seesaw affair, so one, one lot attack here, then they, get, then they get attacked back, and as usual, it, um, it hinges on uh, the personal intervention of Dumoirier. Dumoirier, oh, the really? French, also involved, sorry, flinging off on a tangent here, also involved is the future King Louis-Philippe, he's commanding a, a division of the French army as well, he, he's supposed to have done very well in this battle as well, Quite a young man. Uh, obviously, he's not going to be in the army much longer because they start chopping people like its heads off. But um, uh, being in, being in the nobility is pretty much a, a ticket to leave the army. It, it's a no no. It's a no no in France in 1792. Yeah, in the, but uh, Du um is 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 inspiring, and you're saying that that he um, he really sort of gets the troops going and manages to provide them with the necessary land to to carry the day. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we think of morale as being very important these days. We know about that kind of thing. It wasn't really codified in that fashion uh, in the 18th century. He talks about the spirit of the mm. French army. He, he's, he's, uh, he says that it, needs to be, uh, it needs to be coaxed out. It needs to be protected. It needs to be, they need to be encouraged. The French soldiers need to see their generals leading from the front. And he does that. He, uh, he uh, leads the... Uh, he leads a bayonet charge through the centre of the of the Austrian position. It's one of those battles where it's hard to work out what's what's going on. I mean, I, I've read his account of it, and it'd be interesting to see what the Austrians say about it. But yeah. there was some confusion on one of their wings, and the the, the village of Jamaps then falls, and their position is penetrated, and that's pretty much it. They game over. That's game over. Yeah, they 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 just basically. Um, they move off, and uh, and I suppose because right. they're um, such a small force, their critical mass is, is pretty much lost. Is is that why they then can't pull themselves together again and mount any further resistance? And and basically, the whole of the Austrian Netherlands falls as a result. Much. I mean, they seem throughout this period. the The Austrian army is a very it's a it's a fine professional force. They fight extremely well whenever they're called upon to do so. But they do seem to give up quite easily. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't take a lot. 
for them to decide, uh, yeah, we're not going to win this one, right, everybody. And perhaps it's back to this Corden idea that, uh, you know, it, it's all over. We're not going to win. Uh, we need to uh, contain this. We need to pull back. They don't do any routing. There, there's none of this. I mean, the French army throughout this period spends most of its time running away. <laughs> um, <laughs> not something the French like to hear, but um, there's a hell of a lot of running away, and they really do run away. Whereas the Austrians will just fall back in good order, as they say. You know, they, they ah, just that, that is and a very interesting and revealing difference. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this cool, it's this enthusiasm. You know, they, they get very frothy and they they run off. But if it goes badly, they're a little bit like a football crowd, I suppose. <laughs> if it goes badly, they get very oh no, that's it, we're off. But uh, the, the, the Austrians decide they've lost this one and they, they pull back and uh, that's it. They surrender Belgium. Belgium becomes uh, very much part of France. So by the end of 1792, uh, having um, fully expected the French military to, to crumble, that hasn't happened. And actually by the winter quarters, Netherlands is, is now in uh, France's sights. Absolutely. De Moirier decides the Netherlands is the next place. He says very revealingly in his, in his memoirs that uh, he feels he has to do big stuff. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise his days are numbered, basically. They are, getting, they are starting to get around to uh, executing military commanders by now. If, 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 you, if you're not doing much, you'll either get sacked or, 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 you're, or even worse, you get your head cut off. So uh, he feels he's got to do big things. Philip Bull there, providing us with a reality check, I suppose, just in terms of the pressure that the French commanders faced. You know, you need to do well in your job, otherwise your performance review with the French government is not going to go well. Okay, well, so Charles, so um, what about the battle itself, the Battle of Jemap? This is a tough fight, but it, it feels like it's one that could have gone either way, even though the French heavily outnumbered the, uh, the Austrian forces. Well, yes, indeed. Um, Saxtechen had drawn up his army in a strong defensive position, um, somewhere where the French you know, virtually had to attack him because Jemap is actually on the on the main road, basically from Paris to Brussels, um, and the French duly attack, um, and they do so using columns. And the fact is that these columns. Um, a thrown into action, and over and over again, they're cut to pieces and driven back. Um, eventually, the French do overcome the Austrians by employing what you can call uh, combined arms tactics. They they bolster the infantry attack um, or their infantry attacks with artillery, um, with cavalry, um, and this eventually proves successful. But in the end. All Jemap does is show that battles are won by the bigger army. It, the, the Austrians very nearly didn't lose, and the result could have been very different. What I find interesting about Jemap is that, uh, in terms of battle itself, it's not particularly bloody, um, so to speak. I mean, the Austrians, uh, I think, suffered uh, 800 or so casualties, uh, losing a few hundred more prisoners, uh, and, and the French have... Uh, about 700, I think, killed and double that number of wounded. So in terms of the sheer numbers, uh, 
they are not that high and, and uh, compared to the impact that this battle had. And I think that the intensity of the battle, says, you know, for the listeners, is that it will only increase as we go forward so that by the time we get to the Napoleonic Wars, we are no longer will talk about, you know, two, three thousand casualties in the decisive battles like Jemab. We'll talk about a, a factor of, you know, several. <laughs> uh, you know, think of uh, uh, Austerlitz at, two, you know, over 20,000 uh, casualties just on one side. Or think of Borodino with the combined casualties of close to 100,000. And so to our second interview with Paul DeMay. And here our focus shifts south from Flanders and the Low Countries to the Rhineland and what is today's border between France and Germany. It was in this direction that the Duke of Brunswick had retreated after the Battle of Volmy that we heard about in the last episode. And with the Austrian and Prussian armies not threatening to be up to much, what options did the French commanders in this sector have at this stage? The main attention was on the invasion of the Austrian Netherlands. That was the main show. But it didn't stop Adam Philippe, the Comte de Custine, of cooking up what can fairly be called a cunning plan, as Paul DeMay explains once more. Maybe in later episodes, we won't have enough space to devote to this kind of rogue activity. Um, But I'm very grateful to Paul for suggesting it, because as he tells it, it's a hell of a story. After the um, Allied defeat at Valmy and the the very slow withdrawal, they came up with all sorts of cunning plans. They they had ambitious schemes to act against the lines of communication of, of the Allied army. They were going to do all sorts of grand things that would basically complete the destruction of Brunswick's army. But um, when it came down to it, they just didn't have the resources to do that. There was still reasonably substantial Austrian forces facing them in uh, across the Rhine. And although the commander there, Esterhazy, was, let's say, lethargic, to say the least, um, they didn't dare leave Alsace completely undefended. And they came up with this cunning plan of attacking the Austrian magazines at Speyer. Oh, I see. So this really was a raid, basically. It was no more than a raid. It was only 20 miles from Landau, which was at that stage a, a French enclave, it was a French fortress, 20 miles away with a weak garrison because the main Austrian garrison had been pulled away to go and support um, the the invasion. They basically decided they would raid Speyer. It is no more than a raid that they would take, seize the magazines there because they were always keen to get their hands on any supplies they could get. And also they had a, a cunning plan to levy contributions on the magistrates and clergy. So it right. was a sort of a, an easy win, if you like, for them. Right. And was it early October that they started to, you know, that they rocked up in Mainz and um, started causing trouble? Right. Well, if we, if we go on a little bit from there, they didn't set off until the end of September, which is quite late in the year for for military yeah. operations. If you think um, the weather is deteriorating and without any real supplies at all, Christine makes his run on the 29th of September. And he's only got thirteen or 14,000 troops. This isn't a big mass army. It reinforces the fact it was, a, it was really a quick raid. And on the following yeah. day, he defeated the, um, the Mainz and Austrian troops who were guarding Speyer. They had about 3,500 troops. 
And they managed to get, rather than stay in the town, which might have been a good idea, might not, they marched out, got themselves caught in a loop of the Rhine, were overwhelmed by Custine and forced to surrender. So basically, what started out, using Blanning's phrase, the smash and grab raid, has turned into a, a sort of a startling victory. They've marched into the empire, they've captured Spire, they've captured these magazines, they've destroyed the Austrian and Mainz troops, and Custine's a bit of a hero. And it goes on from there because without really any um, clear authority, he then marches on to Philipsburg along the Rhine, which has got Austrian magazines in it, and he takes Worms, which is an undefended city, and again, levies contributions. But he heard rumours that large numbers of Austrians and Prussians were marching against him. And so he fell back. He almost back to Landau. He went to a place called Edersheim, which is about five miles north of Landau. And plucked up his courage again, realised that the rumours had no, had no foundation. And he set off for Mainz because they, they'd heard that there was a substantial pro-French or pro-revolutionary body. Uh, there, were, there were large numbers of people who were sympathetic, put it that way. And was there anything about the city itself that was materially useful? Um, money. Or strategically useful, I suppose. Well, yes and no. I mean, the Mainz was, I think, known as the bulwark of the empire. It was a, a, an immensely strong fortress in its day, but it had been allowed to go to wreck and ruin. They'd knocked down some of the some of the fortifications to build gardens, which was fairly typical. They had, I mean, to give you an idea, they had about two and a, two, just under three thousand regular troops there. But they were mainly old men, raw recruits, and convalescents because the pick of the troops had been sent to Spire. They had, depending on who you believe, between 154 and 193 cannon in the fortress. So it was impregnable if you like and the slight difficulty is they didn't have anywhere they had fewer than 100 gunners so they couldn't man the guns they had a large number of civilian volunteers like sort of students armed students and so on but it had no garrison of any of any consequence the benefit for the french is that the victory at spire had scared them stiff they they there were rumours going around that twenty or 30,000 men were coming. Um, they'd just destroyed the best, the pick of the Mainz army and a large number of Austrians at Spire. And they were coming to seize Mainz. And really, what they wanted in Mainz was, was treasure. Well, just to move things along a bit, Mainz then fell on the 21st of October. Um, and yes. uh, it, it, Frankfurt was, was next on the list. But this is really starting to get get quite ambitious for, for a group of just a, you know 13,000 men. Yeah, he, they captured Frankfurt on the 22nd. And there was a small fortress at Königstein they also captured. And at the end of Oct, for the rest of October, they basically went around north of Frankfurt um, seized salt mines at Nauheim. Um, they raided the numerous abbeys and small principalities in the area. And it was, as you say, it was ambitious. Um, with the troops he had, he had no prospect of holding that against uh, a serious allied force. The fact is, at that time, there wasn't a serious force to oppose him. Frankfurt fell to Brunswick's force of about 60,000 in very early December, I think. And um, this was a case of military gravity, as it were, reasserting itself, that you have 60,000 well 
trained troops who were able to take on Christine. Well, there's, there's a couple of other things about that. First thing is, after his successes... Custine, as well as being a sort of a braggart and all the rest of it, he was quite a bit of a backstabber of his colleagues. And he denounced Kellerman, who'd, as oh, I'm, really? sure, I'm sure you know, had played a major part in the Allied, in the defeat of the Prussians at Valmy. He denounced Kellerman because Kellerman wouldn't um, come marching and support Custine's activities. And Right. The way politics were, were handled at those stages, denunciations weren't a private matter. It was published in the Monitor. You know, he was calling um, Kellerman a coward and this, that, and the other. And yeah, Jacques. They shipped out the previous commanders, and in on paper, Custine has got quite substantial resources. He's got um, the army of the Moselle, which is probably about twenty thousand. They stripped the garrisons of Alsace and sent him about fifteen thousand reinforcements. And he was even making a play to have um, Dumouriez, commanding the Army of the North, was um, march was was busy um, subduing Belgium. And he was trying to get Dumouriez ordered to support his his activities. So you got what started out as a very small, very limited objective of grabbing these um, the the magazines and raising some cash, has turned into almost a sort of a a, a major. It, it, Custine is trying to make it the main military activity of the um, of the Republic. I think these days we'd call that mission creep, wouldn't we? Um, but um, seeing as this is um, this this episode of the podcast is um, focusing on the, the the final quarter of 1792, what, what would you say the situation was at the end of December, 31st December 1792? In in what was the situation then? Uh, I, I'd say it was desperate for the French for a variety of reasons. The first one is, although his retreat from Valmy was very slow, the Prussians and their allies, after a short period of rest, they, they were starting to get back into shape. The, the allies have amassed 40,000, 50,000 troops, something of that order, to oppose Custine. And Custine, previous career, prior to the revolution, um, he'd been active in the American War of Independence, um, but he'd, be, he'd become very in awe of the Prussian army. So he sees basically what he regards as the best troops in Europe. And the Duke of Brunswick, rightly or wrongly, had the reputation of the foremost general in Europe at that time. He sees Brunswick, the best general, with the Prussians, the best troops, coming at him in large numbers. And at the same time, as they're only growing in strength, his army is starting to melt away. So you've got an army yes. that never really had planned beyond a quick raid stranded in Germany and so at the end of the year the strategic initiative has passed to the Allies and their position had, had improved yeah. since um, Custine had launched his raid and the French position had, had deteriorated dramatically So Paul DeMay there describing this uh, really uh, bonkers situation that had developed uh, in these three months uh, with Custine uh, running amok, let's say, and getting thoroughly carried away. Well, um, Alex, uh, let me ask you about the um, the 
political situation in terms of, well, I suppose I mean the politics of how the French revolutionaries in government were viewing this whole approach. Because what the, you've got the fighting on the one hand, but actually um, there's there's this ideological prism through which the French revolutionaries are, are, are looking at this. And of course, while the French revolutionaries um, might be looking like this, perhaps those who were being invaded weren't looking at it in quite the same way. But I think we're talking about here the National Assembly's views, and in particular, the fraternity decree. Let, let me ask you about that. Um, that's one of the interesting elements in this story, uh, because, and, and that what makes this particular uh, moment, uh, you know, this last three months of 1792, so crucial to overall story uh, of, that we're discussing. Um, in November uh, and December of 1792, the National Assembly adopted what we sometimes refer to as the propaganda decrees, although uh, sometimes they refer to this fraternity decrees. And together, they are very interesting documents because they promise, quote, fraternity and help to all people who wish to recover their liberty. So here, in no, you know, without qualification, the French extend the helping hand to any group of people who want to uh, uh, rise up uh, against the established authority. And so French, in these decrees, um, they clearly harbor on this illusion, a rather dangerous illusion, that uh, peoples of Europe would quickly and willingly embrace revolutionary ideas. If wars had to be waged, well, why not wage them for this freedom and the cuddly feeling that you have inside? Well, the world revolution, they believe, was imminent. And this extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily really optimistic assessment in reality lay uh, arrested on a rather inflated and unrealistic appraisal of what the French military was actually capable of. And more, more crucially, on the unwarranted um, conviction that everyone will embrace revolution just, the revolution, just as revolutionaries themselves have done. Well, Charles, I think it would be really helpful to get a sense of what we mean when we talk about the Rhineland, because I've got this very vague idea in my head of it's the bit of the border between Belgium and the Alps, but I don't really know that much about it. So could, could you just describe, because this is going to be a very important theatre for, for many episodes of this podcast. So what what is the Rhineland exactly? Essentially, it's a very, very roughly right-angled triangle of territory. The the long side is the is the Rhine itself. The um, long upright is um, the, the current Belgio-German and then Dutch-Belgian border. And then and then the, the 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 shorter side of the triangle, the bottom side is is the the, the stretch of the, of the French frontier, running roughly east-west from. Luxembourg to uh, the point where the border suddenly plunges sharply southwards. So um, it's not, it's certainly not all the territory between Belgium and Switzerland. It's about half of it to be precise. As to what it's made up of, well, it was a, a mass of tiny principalities, as I think I've said, um, uh, and also territories belonging to some of the larger German states. There, were, there was Prussian territory, um, there was Bavarian territory. Um, but most of the of the Rhineland was was made up of wealthy prince bishoprics, um, Mainz itself, for example, the most important. Yes, I do find it. I do find it hard to get my head around all these small prince bishoprics and margraves and all the rest. <laughs> but but I suppose 
I suppose regardless of the size of the state, what matters is how susceptible they, they were to the revolution, which, I, which is probably um, itself a consequence of how well off the people living in these parts were. Now, some of these territories were governed well, um, some, some of them were governed badly, but on the whole, the standard of living was pretty high. It was a prosperous area. Um, there was some industry, um, obviously, sitting on the Rhine, very important trade route. So there was there was a, a fair amount of, of, of prosperity. And on the whole, um, it has to be said that the, the people were fairly happy with their rulers. There is very little in the way of popular unrest. And amongst the, the property classes, most people were, were relatively happy. Now, the last thing I'd say about it um, is that it's a very heavily wooded and very, very hilly area. Um, this means that, that, that campaigning there is not always going to be easy. And it's certainly nothing like the, the great North German plains, which open out on the, on the other side of the Rhine. So this is going to be a battleground. Um, it's going to be a bone of contention. Um, and it's going to figure quite a lot in our discussions over the next few months. And so to Britain. We last heard from Jacqueline Reiter in episode one with that famous quote from William Pitt predicting 15 years of peace. But the equanimity of the British, and particularly of its government, has been somewhat rattled during this year, so that by the end of 1792, in this three months, there are big question marks about what the British are going to do next. Here's Jacqueline to talk through the British perspective. Uh, yes, um, 1792 was a bit of a roller coaster for uh, um, uh, Pitt and uh, Britain generally. <laughs> Pretty much as soon as as um, uh, uh, Pitt had made his uh, prediction of fifteen years of peace, Austria and Prussia started to get their um, uh, uh, their war on, as it were, um, yes. and they started. Uh, um, they, they make an alliance, um, and in April they declare war on France. As I think I said before, uh, before um, Prussia was actually Britain's ally um, as part of the Triple Alliance, but it wasn't um, going to bring uh, Britain into a war with Prussia, um, an offensive war. It was a defensive alliance, so Britain wasn't obliged to enter the war, which was good because Pitt really didn't want to. At the same time as this was happening, Britain was starting to uh, um, show some alarming signs of um, uh, radicalism amongst the lower classes. So there were two... Ah, now, is this the dissenters and the corresponding societies? Uh, yes, this is the corresponding societies. The dis dissenters are a, a, a much longer uh, term thing. They were around in the 1780s, 1770s, um, also calling for um, reform and... Uh, um, extension of the suffrage but uh, um, right. what really alarmed Pitt in 1792 was the growth of societies such as the London Corresponding Society and uh, the Society for Constitutional Information. Um, actually the SCI was uh, also an older society but it was revived um, in 1792. So people were getting pretty worked up? <laughs> they were, yes. Um, well, they weren't really getting worked up. They were just kind of excited about what had happened in France. And they thought, well, this is this is the time to start educating the, 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 the people about their rights, 
and um, maybe start putting a bit more pressure on the government, you know, the, the, to, to, to um, extend the suffrage, um, to allow people um, more of a voice in government. Um, but the thing that really worried the government was that these societies were aiming explicitly at uh, the middle and lower classes. Pitt wasn't happy. And I don't think he particularly thought that uh, these societies were necessarily a huge threat at this stage, but he had to do something. So was it, was it December that he decided to take action? No, he took uh, action at the end of May. Um, he, uh, the government issued the Proclamation Against Seditious Writings. Um, this was not simply a reaction against the LCS and the SCI. It was also in reaction to what had happened the previous year in 1791. I think I mentioned that before too, when there were riots in Birmingham over the uh, the 14th of July. So it was in advance of that. Uh, so what they did effectively, the government issued this proclamation saying that reformers are potential revolutionaries, um, things like Thomas, uh, Thomas Paine are seditious, don't spread these things, it's illegal. And um, they then stimulated a petition movement throughout the country. Um, and uh, this is a very successful petition movement, loyal petitions being sent in. The outflowing of loyalist feeling helped control the situation that July. Um, and a lot of radicals actually cancelled their 14th of July celebrations um, with the idea that, uh, you know, the air was a bit volatile for radical opinions. And so there wasn't quite as much violence um, in the summer of 1792 as there had been the previous year. So that was a win. Um. <laughs> but I suppose by the end of the by the end of the year, there were still real worries um, from within the British government. 1792 was a bad year for the harvest. And I think that's quite a critical point to make because in October, all of a sudden, you get these disturbances all over the country. Ah, so and this was triggered by the harvest? Well, not only by the harvest, but I think a lot of them were. In the context of everything else, yeah, yeah. Yes, um, so um, so riots and strikes, and uh, particularly in the east and in the north, which is always worrying, mm. Scotland uh, was um, very badly affected. Um, well, how did he respond to all that then? Uh, well, this is this is the point at which Pitt starts to go from, okay, um, we don't need to get involved in the French Revolution, and hang on a minute, um, <laughs> um, things are looking a bit bad over here because all, while this is all going on, uh, the London Corresponding Society and the Society for Constitutional Information and their friends are gaining in popularity and they're spreading around the country, uh, still spreading their seditious pamphlets, still talking up parliamentary reform. Uh, the French on the continent, um, after initially being beaten back by the Austrians and Prussians, are now starting to fight back. Um, I think you'll hear about that uh, elsewhere, but um, this is significant for Britain because the radicals were also um, energised by the success of the French armies. Well, and the Scheldt, of course, has been opened up, the Scheldt estuary, which is quite significant strategically that, for Britain. Yes, that happens rather later. So that happens uh, while the rioting is going on. So mm. at the same time, we've got all these riots, um, which may or may not be due to the French emigres who are coming across the Channel, because at the same time, of course, France is politically imploding and uh, all the uh, um, French um, refugees are turning up and they appear possibly to be causing trouble as well as, um, you know, coming for help. Right. Um, yes. So yes. that 
that there's a rumour in uh, at the end of October or the beginning of November that there's going to be an emigre-driven run on the banks and uh, um, an attack on the tower. Uh, Edmund Burke makes his famous speech where he uh, declares that the country is on the brink of revolution and hurls a dagger into the floor of the House of Commons, um, which was found amongst uh, several thousand others in Birmingham, which is supposed yes. to be the centre of this great revolutionary endeavour. So you can understand that Pitt's starting to get a bit itchy. And uh, the government actually starts getting behind a loyalist um, counter-movement. So the British government is really jittery and concerned about it, the situation by the end of the it year. Is, it, beyond, it is very definitely. Be, yeah, beyond concerned. But does that mean that war is on the cards, that, that Britain is now thinking about going to war? Well, at the, at the same time, um, there's a lot going on on the continent, as I said, and uh, um, this ties in to what's happening domestically. Up until mid-November, Pitt's kind of able to deal with them separately. He's still keeping Austria and Prussia at arm's length. He's still saying uh, France actually asks Britain to join a, a defensive alliance and Britain says, no, no, we're not, we're not, we're, we're, we're staying neutral here, guys. We're, we're, we're yeah. definitely not going to war with anybody. Yeah. Um, but this is becoming increasingly difficult uh, to maintain that stance. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, there's the uh, France moves into Flanders and the territory of the Netherlands. Um, and now this is a big problem because while Britain isn't obliged to help the Netherlands in an offensive war, Britain is still joined uh, to the, uh, well, I could keep calling them the Netherlands, they're United Provinces. Right. Um, they're joined to them in a defensive alliance. Um, so that's a big problem. And on the 13th of November, the government actually does uh, give a guarantee to the United Provinces that they will come and help them if they are attacked, which is uh, so that's increasingly really likely. Yeah, yeah. It is. And of course, um, France uh, is doing surprisingly well against Austria and Prussia. By the beginning of November, has actually entered Flanders, um, liberates Brussels, um, and shortly afterwards starts bombarding Antwerp, um, which is in the territory of the United uh, Provinces. Um, and then opens the Schelt River, uh, which runs through Antwerp. Um, now, the Schelt River is significant for a number of reasons. Um, it's very close to Britain territorially. Um, it was also closed in 1648 uh, as part of the Treaty of Munster, which ended the Thirty Years' War. Oh, right. Um, so in come the French, um, wantonly tearing up all the international treaties that have kept the peace in Europe, or at least kept the balance of Europe going for the past hundred years. Um, this is not a good move. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the Netherlands is, uh, I keep calling it the Netherlands, but you know what I mean. Um, that area, the Netherlands, United Provinces, Flanders, is very significant for Britain territorially and strategically speaking because so it is it's, so it's viewed close. critically, yeah. It is, yes. Yeah. This assault on, on ter territory, which is very close to uh, Britain's strategic interests, is followed up on the 19th of November by the Decree of Fraternity, uh, which is issued by France, calling up all nations to rise in rebellion. Um, this is obviously a bit of a slap in the face as well, uh, at the time when Britain is starting to think maybe maybe there's a revolution brewing over here. Huh. December is pretty much the point at which it all comes to a close, um, because uh, Britain starts, or Pitt starts December by calling out the militia. Um, but this is actually a um, response to the internal problems rather than to what's happening in France. Um, it's, it's explicitly uh, framed as an attempt to 
keep down rebellion yeah. um, or insurrection, rather. Troops are sent up to Scotland because Scotland's still on fire. But at the same time, Pitt is trying his best to keep things going with France. Uh, so he tries to find ways past the French ambassador. Uh, the French ambassador, uh, the Marquis de Chauvelin, is rather bound up by his government's position. Um, and the government, uh, Pitt, Pitt's government is getting really nowhere with him. Um, but uh, some independent agents, shall we say, start um, coming through in November and December. And one of the prom most prominent of those is a chap called Hugues Marais. Um, there's uh, another chap called uh, Mourgue. And uh, the government listens. Pitt, Pitt listens to this. He's, he's, so he's holding willing out hope. To, he's holding out hope. Um, but the problem is the French government then explicitly says, no, um, these are not our envoys. We're standing by the Marquis de Chauvelin. So how would you sum up the position on December 31st, 1792 in, in Britain? It's essentially war is looking, yeah, gathering storm, yeah. Yes, um, the country is, uh, there, there, is a lot of, there, there are a lot of disturbances in the country. Um, there is evidence that there may be some French emigres causing trouble. There is um, evidence that the radical societies are spreading seditious opinions um, to the lower classes. Um, I mean, all this is, is definitely from Pitt's point of view. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, th things are not looking good. There's a sense of Pitt being taken along by the tide of developments that he's sort of almost an unwilling, he's not driving this himself, but 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 it starts to feel a bit irresistible. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely don't think that he was looking for war in December. Um, I, his reaction to the uh, embassy from um, uh, Marais suggests that he wasn't, that he was willing to to um, look at alternatives. Um, and even as late as, as um, mid-December, or um, when Russia comes to Britain um, saying, okay, we want an explicitly counter-revolutionary war here, would you be willing to join a coalition with us and some other people, yes. um, or other countries, uh, to, to, to invade France and uh, um, liberate the French monarchy? Uh, Britain says, no, we're not willing to do that, um, but this is what we are willing to do. And um, Britain actually spells out... Um, her war aims, which are actually at this stage pretty limited. It's uh, basically if France can uh, withdraw from Flanders and uh, and the United Provinces, and if um, the decree um, promising aid to revolutionaries is rescinded and if they close the Scheldt, then Britain is quite happy at this point to recognise the Republic and will quite happily coexist with the Republic. Um, of course, this bluff was never called. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it does suggest that Britain would have been happy to, to, to coexist with the Republic. Well, that's Jacqueline Reiter there. And let me ask you, Charles, what were European attitudes to Britain at this time during 1792? We've all heard the phrase perfidious Albion. And, and basically, there was wholesale distrust of Britain. She was seen as being a very uh, selfish power. Um, she was seen as being an unreliable ally. She was seen as essentially a law unto herself. 
Um, and this is going to be one of Britain's big problems um, throughout the revolutionary Napoleonic period. She needs continental allies, but nobody likes her. Nobody trusts her. That's something which the British are going to have to struggle with throughout. At the, at the moment, it doesn't really matter because the British don't want to get involved. And, you know, at the moment, don't believe they have to. And I suppose one misperception that might have developed is about this idea of the, this enormous ideological split. I mean, we have Burke uh, in the Commons throwing his dagger down, as Jacqueline mentioned, um, getting really worked up. And uh, when you read his uh, writing about the French Revolution at the time, it looks like these two sides are completely at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, is is that uh, in danger of being somewhat exaggerated, perhaps, that difference? Basically, I think this is really a question about whether it's realpolitik trumping um, the niceties of whether you have a, a monarch or not. Yes, Burke was very, very exercised about the revolution in France. And there were other people who were becoming exercised. Was there a fundamental ideological split? No, not really. The British had certain fundamental aims in Europe. Their essential aim in Europe was to keep Holland and Belgium out of the hands of France. France could not be allowed to control the whole of the, the coast of the Channel and the North Sea, stretching all the way from, from Brest to uh, uh, to Denmark. So uh, it followed that Holland had to be backed as an independent state and Belgium had to be kept in the hands of somebody else, preferably one of the, one of the big powers like Austria. Yeah, Austria is perfect, actually, isn't it? Because Austria would have no ambitions towards Britain, obviously. So, that, yeah, yeah. No, uh, none, none, none at all. None at all. Now, Holland and Belgium could be kept out of, of France's hands. The British were prepared to do a deal with the French. You see them here in 1792, not rushing to engage in war. That implies a willingness to, to live with the revolution. But everything revolves around British security in Europe. That is the sticking point. And it's, it, it out, frankly, it outweighs everything else. So, plenty of question marks at the end of 1792 about what might be possible in the coming year. And uh, that's what we're just going to quickly cover off now with uh, Charles Esdale and Alex Mika Baridze. Well, Alex, let me ask you, in France, what were the king's prospects by the end of 1792? Is there any way out for him at all? <laughs> Short answer, no. <laughs> uh, he just, he was about to book one-way ticket to the guillotine. Um <laughs> Yes. Well, we know that too many too many members of the National Assembly were keen on seeing him gone. Uh, gone uh, either in, in uh, long-term imprisonment, because that was indeed an option, or gone in a sense of execution. And ultimately, we know that when the, uh, when the voting will take place, the majority of the votes will be indeed in favor of uh, execution. So I don't see any way that the king could have escaped it. So uh, unfortunately, that's the prospect for the king. And he knows that. I think by the okay. end of December, he knows that. Well, let me ask you this. 
Um, if you were living in, I don't know, France or particularly Paris, and it was New Year's Eve or, or Christmas 1792, after the year you had had, what on earth would you have been thinking was, was going to be coming up in 1793? What are the prospects, not just for the next three months, but for the, for the, for the next year? Is there any hope that there's any semblance of normal, normality on the horizon after the, the great turmoil um, that, that, that France had seen in the preceding 12 months? Certainly, I would have been hopeful that normality will be coming, but uh, I don't think I would be really convinced that that was possible. The 1792 was a rather turbulent year. You've you've started your year as, with a monarchy and you are ending with a republic. You know, you started in a country in peace and you are ending the war with barely holding the front line. So you, you, you know that normality will not return. You might be hopeful, but it will not return anytime soon. What you hope, and certainly I would have hoped, been, been hopeful if I were French, that our armies would be sustaining the recent series of victories at Jemap, at Valmy, that the story, you know, the, the, the conquest will continue, that this narrative of us spreading the liberty and freedom to the neighboring uh, oppressed people will be indeed sustained. But even there, I think some, you know, many, me, me and my friends would have been sitting in a tavern chatting about it and were not particularly convinced that even that was possible. <laughs> well, Charles, what about from your view of the French perspective? How much was possible? Were all those doubts that we'd had earlier this year about the performance of the French military fully extinguished by these two victories at Volmy and, and Jemap? In, in a tactical sense, not at all. I mean, the, the Maurier's army had hardly been tested um, at Valmy, and, and frankly, had not appeared in a in a very good light. Um, yes, it had it had survived, but there there were question marks hanging over its performance. Shemap had been a victory gained over a, an opponent who was wildly outnumbered. Um, and, and who yet did very well, you know, beating off attack after attack after attack. It wasn't an easy fight in the slightest. So there are there are serious question marks about the quality of the French army. But more to the point, there is the issue of of who France is going to have left to fight. At this point, she is dependent on voluntary enlistment. And frankly, she's not getting enough recruits. She's losing deserters at an enormous rate. She's losing men falling sick from from a variety of diseases at an enormous rate. It's, it seems like what you're saying, Charles, is that the French government have got themselves in deep in 1792, both militarily and politically. They have set themselves up uh, in 1792 they're committed uh, but things are going to resolve themselves or there is a reckoning coming in 1793 the french armies are becoming increasingly skeletal and yet they are committed to an aggressive war they, they've already occupied belgium and, and they are certainly looking very aggressively at holland they've they've invaded the rhineland that's not going to go down well with, with, with either Austria or Prussia. In other words, the Prisitans, um have committed France to a war of aggression. 
we we can argue about whether it was an, an ideological war or whether whether they were just interested in traditional French goals, um, the natural frontiers and so forth. But the fact of the matter was, whatever whatever the reason, France is committed to a war which was likely to antagonise Britain and it, and and likely to perpetuate the struggle against Prussia and Austria. Had the Britons had the Britons prepared France for that struggle? No, not at all. They had acted completely irresponsibly. Um, and the fact was that the French did not have the forces to sustain their conquests. And that is going to be shown very, very quickly um, in the first few months of 1793. And that is exactly what we can look forward to in the next episode of the Napoleonic Quarterly. For now, though, thank you to Charles Esdale and to Alex Micabaretze. Thanks to Philip Ball, Paul DeMay and Jacqueline Reiter for their contributions in this episode. Thanks to my very old friend Ben Eckersley for composing and performing all the music you've heard. At the end of this quarter, there are 8,204 days to go until Waterloo. I hope you'll join me for episode five and among my guests for that episode will be Philip Bull once again to describe in his inimitable way the continuing problems faced by the Allied forces. This isn't what they're expecting, these sort of half-naked half, half naked lunatics charging at them with, with their bayonet.